The Psychedologist. Hi, thank you for tuning in to The Psychedologist. Um, would love to introduce this episode to you with Alea Harris, but first I want to announce an event coming up before Horizons Perspectives on Psychedelics conference this year in New York City. Um, that conference is in, I believe it's 13th annual year, and uh, this year they added some workshops and classes before the uh, conference weekend, which is Saturday and Sunday, October uh, 12th and 13th. But on Friday, October 11th, myself and Laura May Northrup of the podcast Inside Eyes, you might have heard her on a previous episode here on The Psychedologist. Uh, also, Britta Love, who also was on The Psychedologist in its early, early days. We should probably do another new episode together. As well as uh, two amazing restorative justice facilitators, Shaylee Agniotri and Gabrielle Burton-Hill. We will be all contributing to a sort of community dialogue, talks, ethics, and responses to sexual harm conversation. And that's at the Downtown Association from 9.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. So I'll read you a little bit about that. Sexual harm is a global epidemic that happens everywhere, including psychedelic and entheogenic spaces. How can we learn to come together as a community around this issue? What are some preventative measures we can take to end sexual harm? How might psychedelics themselves assist us in transforming a culture endemic with sexual harm? What tools are available to help transform harm when it happens? Join with other community members for presentations and dialogue about sexual harm in psychedelic and entheogenic spaces. The day will open with a circle, led by restorative justice facilitators, to increase our collective capacity for these hard conversations. In the afternoon, there will be presentations examining power dynamics and sexual harm, embodying consent in psychedelic and entheogenic spaces, building accountability culture, and psychological dynamics that lead to sexual harm in healing relationships. Following the presentations, there will be an integration circle, co-led by yours truly, to sit with the day's content and identify community needs and concerns in addressing sexual violence. This dialogue will also guide future programming, including more involved training and community planning around recognizing, addressing, and preventing sexual violence. There is a sliding scale for attendance, um, and then if that presents a problem, we want everyone to know that all are welcome. So if there's a difficulty in um, paying any of the amounts asked, just contact us and we'll make it work. So I would love to see you all there, or if you're at Horizons, look for me. I'll be there on Sunday for sure. I think I'll be at Symposia's party on Saturday night, and uh, everything else I'm going to leave up in the air to see how my energy is. Thank you for listening, and now let me tell you about this episode. In this episode, Leia shares about intergenerational trauma and healing within her family and how psychedelics figure into that story. We discuss the failings and dangers of the mainstream Western medical model of mental health and its treatments. We talk about the potential of psychedelics and the essential need for support for people who take them, as well as fears that people with a history of mental health struggles may have about taking them. And we talk about how to move towards more compassionate and just responses to all of our mental and psychological states. Leah Harris is a mother, writer, and facilitator who works at the intersection of trauma-informed change, harm reduction, and collective liberation. Mm, that is amazing. She is an amazing person. You're going to hear about her very soon. You're going to hear from her very soon. Um, she seeks to change the way we understand and respond to mental health and madness traumatic experiences, suicide, and drug use. Her work appears in a new anthology edited by L.D. Green and Kelechi Ubozo, entitled We've Been Too Patient, Voices from Radical Mental Health. Definitely recommend that book. She is a correspondent with Mad in America, where she covers health, politics, and technology, and has also written for Adbusters and Truth Out. Herself a survivor of trauma and suicide attempts, Leia supports other survivors to reclaim their power through creative expression, holistic approaches, and social action. Leia is a certified tension and trauma release exercise facilitator. You can learn more about her or contact her at leahidaharris.com. And that's all linked in the show notes. One final announcement on the front of accessibility. I'm so grateful to a few people for sending me 
transcription services so that we can work on getting the episodes transcribed and increase the accessibility of the psychologist. So I hope to have more updates for you coming up on that soon. If you're interested in volunteering or supporting the show in any way, please reach out to us because we're always interested in finding collaborations and exchanges uh, and would love to grow the show in some ways. So you can contact me at lfriedman.psy at gmail.com. I'll link that in the show notes. That's L-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N dot P-S-Y at gmail.com. Everyone, Leah Harris. So uh, I'm Leah Harris, and uh, I've been working really for, I would say, uh, close to the past 20 years uh, to really help affect a paradigm shift in how we understand mental health, suicide, drug use, all of these things that kind of exist along different spectrums for people, uh, and really see if we can uh, respond in a way that's based on compassion and human dignity rather than a lot of the ways that we're conditioned to respond to these things in our society. Mm, like a response of fear or thinking we know what's better for other people and it's to make them be more like how society values, how society places like a healthy person is? Absolutely. I mean, I think my biggest um, beef is with the medical model, you know, when it's applied to mental health, this kind of individualistic medical model that sort of locates mental health issues or, or substance use or whatever might be going on for the person kind of strictly within the individual and does not sort of look at what's going on in the family, what's going on in the community, what's going on in society. So I've, I've really been pushing to move away from this sort of strictly medical or pathologizing way of understanding our lived experiences and kind of bringing more of a, a harm reduction and, and social justice perspective to it. Mm. What brought you into this work? So, yeah, I, I always say, I, you know, I, I feel like in some ways I was kind of born to do it. Um, and that I was born to two parents uh, who were diagnosed with serious, serious mental health issues when they were young people. Um, and so kind of growing up with, you know, parents who had these diagnoses and kind of all of the you know, sort of stigmatizing and discriminatory ways that we treat people, you know, who do have diagnoses like schizophrenia or bipolar. Uh, so I just kind of grew up in that whole environment and kind of carrying some of that shame um, that was never mine to carry and was never theirs to carry. Um, so I myself, you know, spent most of my adolescence caught up in various systems of care um, that I personally feel did a lot of harm in the name of health. And I'm still in my 40s working through that and trying to heal from that and recover from that. Um, you know, in addition to the personal traumas that I experienced in my life, I experienced a lot of traumas at the hands of people who said they were there to help you, which is, I think, probably one of the most gaslighting and crazy making things out there. It's like, we're here to help you. Well, I don't find it helpful that that says you're crazy, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's, there's really no way out of that loop, you know? Um, so it's, it's definitely part of what's motivated me um, to kind of fight for another way of understanding people and being with people. Um, and so, yeah, in my, in my twenties, I discovered an entire movement of individuals across the world who were, fighting the same fight who, you know, really wanted to, to change the entire paradigm in terms of how we understand mental health and suicide and, and, and drug use. Um, so yeah, I've been, I've been kind of fighting battle on, on several fronts for most of my adult life and uh, probably won't stop. <laughs> so for someone who's not familiar with the concept of ancestral trauma or just some trauma passed through our lineage. Do you, would you mind saying a little bit about that? As you mentioned that in the beginning. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think one of the things I've, I've really d done a deep dive into trauma just on the individual level and, and on other levels. And, and I think one of the things our society is only now beginning to grasp is that, just because something happened a long time ago and it may not be happening anymore does not mean that it doesn't continue to affect you. 
um, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, in, in every way, um, that these traumas, you know, without the right support and help to begin to resolve them, live on in the body and in the mind. And similarly, um, we know from the field of epigenetics, which is a sort of burgeoning, you know, field within neuroscience, but, but you know, the evidence seems to be clear that within uh, families, we can see these sort of intergenerational uh, traumas that are sort of passed on in the very ways that uh, genes express themselves, right? Um, we see it in whole communities. I, a lot of the research has looked at uh, the descendants of Holocaust survivors or, um, you know, descendants of people who were enslaved in this country. I think they've looked at uh, Japanese Americans whose families were in, in internment camps as well as Native Americans and, and all of the horrific experiences of, of genocide and cultural extinction. Um, and so how that can actually impact, you know, the way uh, the descendants kind of relate to the world, um, you know, and so while I'm talking about that, you know, I also just want to say that trauma is not the whole story um, and that there is this intergenerational trauma, but there's also, you know, intergenerational strength, mm. uh, intergenerational survival, right? You know, the word resilience can be a loaded term, but but always keeping in mind that it's, it's not just the trauma, that, that there's all of these ways that we've managed to cope and, and survive. Um, so I think I like to hold both of those together. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's amazing. And that was really helpful to me to hear at this moment, actually, as um, I, I have increasingly seen how the work I do, like, it's going to go down as in like, if I raise children, like I know that healing myself helps them have less to deal with. And but I also see it going up, like the changes that I make positively impact my mom and my grandmother and, you know, other people in my family. Um, and yeah, I think that that's another really helpful piece that while we may inherit some shit, we may also inherit um, like gold, like the the stuff to help us get through the shit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I worry about some of the science and the research that it, it really it focuses on the trauma, which is important. And we need to be doing that. But we also need to remember, you know, the other piece is that is that we are survivors. We wouldn't be here if we weren't. Right. Right. It's like a miracle. Each of our existence is a miracle. Yeah, absolutely. So you said that your both of your parents were in the mental health system, so to speak. Um, do you want to share any more about that? Like, like what what happened to them that impacted you, and like how are how you're creating, trying to create a different space for that now? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, focusing on my my mother's story is. Um, you know, maybe a little more relevant specifically, you know, to some of the themes, you know, in your podcast. Uh, and, and, you know, I can share a little bit about my dad as well, but her, her story, I think is one that, um, you know, it kind of haunts me the most, uh, out of both of them. Both of them are no longer with us. Um, but my mother's story really haunts me the most because, um, I think really what she was experiencing was the effects of negative experiences on psychedelics. Um, you know, this is back in the late 60s. Uh, you know, of course, there are the other issues, right, us being a Eastern uh, European Jewish American immigrant family, you know, mm -hmm. free, fleeing from anti-Semitic oppression, right? So there's all of those things. But also, uh, my mother ran away from home when she was 17 years old from our sort of middle-class Jewish household in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and ran away to the Bay Area, uh, we think, to San Francisco uh, to kind of be part of that awakening and sort of the hippie movement and the revolution that was happening at that time as so many young people were doing from all around the country. And I think, you know, there's there was a, a shadow side and certainly we know about this shadow side, but the, the sort of shadow side to the whole hippie movement, right? And and so people declare, you know, after the Manson 
murders in 1968, that that was kind of the end of the hippie movement. Was that 68 or 69? Was that sort of the end of the hippie movement? But it, you know, it had been going downhill um, where the sort of flower child and the love and light narratives, you know, there was, there was darkness there. There were, there was a lot of sexual trauma happening to young women, you know, in the name of quote, free love, right? There were a lot of things happening that were, were not really being um, talked about then and aren't talked about now. And so I can't know exactly what happened to my mom uh, because she's not here to share the narrative, but um, I suspect that, uh, you know, some negative things happened to her out in California. Uh, I suspect that she had, you know, maybe some challenging experiences, you know, experimenting with psychedelics and didn't have uh, the support that she needed before, during and after those experiences to, to make sense of it. Um, I think they opened her up in a way that was very difficult to come back from. Mm-hmm without the right kind of support. So what happened to my mom was in 1968, uh, the police found her sleeping on a park bench. And uh, she was brought back to Milwaukee, where our family is from. And uh, at that point, she was 18 years old and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Um, There's, you know, not a whole lot of mention of, of the sort of issues with LSD and psychedelics, you know, there's, there's some kind of mention in her records. Um, but mostly it was just seen as, oh, she has this mental illness and we need to treat for mental illness. So that was like a whole lifetime of her, of her being put on extremely heavy duty antipsychotic mm. medications like Haldol, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know, mm. kinds of medications um, that can be extremely dangerous over the long term, you know, on metabolic function, they call they cause something called tardive dyskinesia, which is um, permanent um, kind of involuntary muscle movements and Parkinsonian type symptoms. I mean, it's just, and, and mortality, early mortality. I mean, I just came across a meta-analysis, you know, that looked at both elderly populations and, and populations in general, you know, on these antipsychotic drugs. And they shorten mortality for sure. I mean, they, the study basically said, use these drugs as little as possible. Um, And so, you know, my mom's spiritual search was medicalized, pathologized, whatever she was searching for, you know, was turned into illness. Right. And And then not um, to mention, like she could have been having spiritual awakenings. And so those were muted by the antipsychotics. Like she she may have been getting valuable information, you know, to use in some way. And instead that's just that whole limb is cut off when we medicate with antipsychotics, I believe it's like a spirit form of spiritual violence. Potentially. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's, you know, people call them a chemical straitjacket. I mean, yes, absolutely. Spiritual violence is a really powerful way of looking at this that I hadn't, you know, really thought about it in exactly those terms, but yeah, I, I'm very interested in sort of researching more about, antipsychotics and psychedelics and sort of the different pathways through which they operate. And it it almost seems to me, this is a very uneducated opinion, but that antipsychotics almost do the opposite of psychedelics. Like whatever psychedelics open up, antipsychotics kind of shut down. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I'm right about that, but that's my theory. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't understand all the sort of pathways and the, you know, how they work in the brain. And I know they all work in different ways, the various psychedelics, but antipsychotics have a deeply, deeply sort of blunting effect on, on people's perception and consciousness. Oh, no, no, you're fine. Um, So, yeah, so she basically at the age of 18 you know, got caught up in these systems that were violent in many ways. You know, she just spent time in and out of institutions and was told she'd never be able to kind of have a quote unquote normal life, Um, you know, and and the sort of ideas of uh, eugenics and that affect people with disabilities. I feel like they kind of filtered into my mom's experience and, and my experience by extension Whereas she was, you know, when she became pregnant with me, um, quote, out of wedlock in 1975, you know, everyone was trying to convince her not to have me. 
because, you know, women with schizophrenia or women with psychedelic or not psychedelic, sorry, with, you know, um, psychotic, you know, disorders or diagnoses should not have children, right? It was really that idea that these people should not breed. And um, I, you know, sort of grew up with that thinking in my consciousness. Um, And, and yeah, it's, it's still, it's something that I'm still working through and trying to heal from is this idea that I never should have even existed because she would pass on those, you know, those psychotic traits or those undesirable traits, right. To me, it, it, it still kind of smacks of eugenics ideas and mm-hmm. I'm old, but I'm not that old. You know, mm-hmm. they're still with us. Okay. So, so yeah. And, you so know, she had you anyways. Yeah, guess, Thank goddess. Right. She was, she was so uh, rebellious and non-compliant, you know, it was just something that got her in trouble in a lot of ways, but also I think served her and definitely served me in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, so she had me and really had no support, um, little to no support. Our family tried to do their best, but, you know, given that they didn't even want her to have me to begin with, you know, it was not the most wholehearted effort. Um, and so, uh, you know, they tried, but, you know, she kept trying to go off of these meds and because they just, you know, knocked her out trying to take care of a toddler and a child, um, you know, and, and every time she would go off of them, you know, it would be, get really ugly. So uh, ev- eventually by the time, you know, I was five years old, I was removed from her custody and um, I'm not at all trying to sort of compare myself to what's going on at the border, you know, with family separation. But um, but the, all of this, you know, news is kind of hitting me, I think, on a, on a deeper level because I experienced the pain of being, you know, physically separated, you know, over and over, you know, family separation. And I, you know, I loved my mom, you know, as chaotic as things were. Um, she was a wonderful and loving mother, you know, trying to do her best. So, you know, just the idea that taking me away from her was best for everybody, you know, is is something that is such an outdated idea that unfortunately we still are doing this to families, you know, tearing them apart for all kinds of reasons and then wondering, you know, why, why there's all of these sort of traumatic impacts. And so she passed away when I was, um, 20 years old and she was 46 and it's kind of wild cause I'm getting closer and closer to the age she was when she died. And, um, I just really kind of been on a mission to expose what happened to her. Um, because I feel like the things that happened to her are still going on to some degree that are happening to women, women with disabilities, mothers with disabilities, um, you know, and, and also to point out, you know, where the advances are um, in that there are organizations now that are working to support folks who've had negative experiences, you know, while on psychedelics. Um, and so, so that has changed, um, but there's still a lot about her story that, that hasn't changed. So I've, I've really been on a mission to try to expose it um, and to, you know, find justice for her in, in some way. Um, that's just a personal mission of mine. Um, and in doing so, trying to find justice for a lot of women um, whose lives were sort of ruined by the treatment they received. Yeah. So basically, I had this like intuition after my mom passed to I had to get her records from what that's like 1968 to 1996 when she passed. Um, and I literally got them right before the state destroyed them. Um, I had to go in person, just fly to Wisconsin to get them. They wouldn't send them to me. They charged me like a dollar a page to just read about my, my own mother's oppression and death at their hands. However, I'm so glad I have them, um, because they are like a treasure trove of information. And so I found this letter in with the records is a letter from a psychiatrist to a judge, um, basically recommending against, uh, her getting custody of me again. And then it made recommendations about 
was that just like what she should do in general? Well, you probably won't get your daughter back, but we also think that you should do this, right? To like it was it, it was exactly like that. It, you know, the, the the psychiatrist details, you know, she's very focused on getting her daughter back. And then there's literally no response to that. It just says, we think she should be discharged from the hospital, blah, 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 blah. You know, and basically, like, maybe at some point she might consider thinking about getting her daughter back. But right now she needs to live in the real world. Like, it's the most gaslighting, disgusting document. Mm. Shall I read what that recommending paragraph says? Absolutely. Okay. We have the following recommendations. Number one, that Gail be released from Winnebago, the hospital. Yeah, this is actually one of the oldest hospitals, uh, state hospitals in Wisconsin. It's it's still standing. I think it was built in like the late 1800s. Um, Very creepy. Wow. Yes, I was just thinking about those like ghost hunter shows that go to creepy places. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that place is haunted. Anyway, please proceed. <laughs> okay, so re- release her from that haunted place. Number two, <laughs> that she continue to take the Haldol that she is presently taking. Optimally, she should take the present amount once a day, preferably at bedtimes. But if this optimum administration, this is optimum in parentheses, administration of the Haldol cannot be effected. She could take it in the mornings, as apparently she had previously. And if it is difficult to ensure that she take it during the weekends, she could have, quote, drug holidays on the weekends with a commensurate increase during the week. In any case, her taking the Haldol should be monitored by a physician. Hmm. It's a drug holiday because it's not fun to take that stuff. I'm guessing it puts you out. Yeah, it really does. And and it's a, like the the dosages that she was taking. You know, they were it was incapacitating incapacitating dosages. I mean, she slept all the time. That was my recollection. She said, "I can't think. I can't paint. I can't do write any of the oh. things that she loved to do that kept her well as an artist and creative." It literally, she couldn't do them. And I think she did look at it as a chemical straitjacket and didn't understand, you know, the effects of just flushing the meds. Um, And so she would flush them and then she would go into what's called a withdrawal psychosis, rebound sort of psychosis. That's just a result of just cold turkey, you know, going off these medications. And then everyone say, see, see, you are psychotic, you are schizophrenic, so you need to go back on instead of like recognizing there's a thing called rebound psychosis. Nobody talked to her about her needs or her wishes or her desires about this medication. You know, so there's no collaborative relationship. And so she would resist by going off, you know, and, and yeah, they, they, you know, most people who take these drugs talk about, you know, the horrific side effect profile, especially if they're on sort of high doses over a long period of time. Number three, that Gail be absolutely proscribed from taking any street drugs at all under any circumstances. She submits that one of the contributing reasons for this present mental deterioration was a recent one-time use of LSD. As I, This is where it gets really good. And by good, I mean not good. As I have mentioned right. previously, <laughs> some people have a good enough control of their mental faculties to be able to appear to take, quote, street drugs with impunity. But for those who are not able to keep their wits while on these drugs, they are a bane. A bane. <laughs> oh. Just so so telling on this individual's perspective and awareness about the psychedelic experience, about psychosis. Oh. Yeah. So much. Right. Done. There's just this idea like these drugs are good and these drugs are bad. And, you know, if you can handle the bad drugs, good for you. But if you can't, you're a bane to society, you know, and it's not, I think, unlike the ways that we talk about drug users today, you know, in a lot of ways, despite, you know, advances in harm reduction philosophies and programs, right. There is still this idea of, yeah, these folks are a bane 
to society, right? They're the drug users are the dregs of society um, without ever looking at, you know, the legal drugs and the harm that they do or could do, you know, in, in, in some cases. Yeah. You could almost change out number two for number three and be like, you know, this is like future, but, um, you know, that the, the patient will do their psychedelic therapy when they want to. And, you know, in the supportive environment, and then they will refrain from taking psychiatric drugs that mute their awareness of what's going on. It's just like uh, the um, privileging of one drug over another, or like people that take these certain drugs are are bad. These drugs have bad effects when, um, you know, you. I would at least hope that at this time in history, people could have recognized that we don't know all that there is to know. And maybe it's just a call for us to be more cognizant of that now, that no one can really tell you what is a better drug for you, um, that it's up to us feeling out what happens. And and most of all, being in an environment where it's supported and cared for, we're we're held in whatever happens. Yeah, I think that that is so critical, you know, that we could, because we are, um, relational beings, we've had to rely on each other for our survival, you know, for our entire existence as human beings. And, and so it, it is in how we are responded to that. I think so much conditions how we will respond, right. It's that what you said, that sort of caring collaborative environment that says, you know, you are the expert in your own experience and we're here to support you and help you, but you are the expert, right? That's a very, very different orientation than this letter uh, comes from. And, and while there have been changes, I think there still are these extremely kind of paternalistic authoritarian um, strains that are sort of running all through our mental health systems, particularly if you are a person who doesn't have means, right, who's using public mental health systems or is a Medicaid recipient, right? You're, you're not as likely to be responded to in this collaborative kind of way that kind of centers your expertise and your own experience. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think I could just summarize the next two points and just to get back to what you were just saying in the next two points, it's like, she will go to therapy and, you know, keep her, keep her space clean. And, and then, um, he does say that, uh, further hospitalization would be of little benefit, he thinks. So that's, that's good. Like good that he saw that, but now she needs to attempt to live in the real world. This is a quote from our author here. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Which is just so disgusting because this is a quote, real world that they created for her. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they, you know, put her in a situation where she was on extremely high levels of, you know, very debilitating drugs, expected her to care for a kid all by herself. And, you know, when she quote failed at that, it's like, well, we're taking your kid away now live in the real world without any, any actual like comfort of any kind, you know, mm-hmm. it's just re- the most sort of gaslighting victim blaming narrative ever. So would you say that without having had the, the experiences that you had as a, as a child of your parents, that you wouldn't be doing what you're doing today? Yeah, I was really bought into the dominant narrative on a lot of this. You know, I was told my whole life, like, you know, your mom, you know, was sick. She was ill. She um, didn't do what she was supposed to do. And that's why she's dead. You know, she didn't take care of herself. And that's why she's dead. You know, this whole narrative that kind of blamed her, you know, for her own oppression and death. And I think murder, frankly, you know, when someone dies at 46, that's not natural causes. Mm -hmm that's murder, you know, state sponsored, whatever you want to call it. I guess some people would say that's extreme, but that's, that's what, how I see it. Mm. Um, and so I had bought into this, um, and, you know, really bought into this idea because I myself had my own challenges and bought into the idea that, you know, I have these mental illnesses and, um, you know, I, I, I sort of like accepted it, but rejected it at the same time. There was always kind of this like anti-authoritarian, strain. Um, but what happened was I, um, 
I ended up going to graduate school and this was in my late twenties. And I think all of the things that I hadn't dealt with and had sort of pushed away or just wanted to like forget about or traumas that I thought I could leave in the past just reared up. And I was in grad school and I was like, physically, my body was breaking down psychologically. I was having a huge, huge, hugely difficult time just making it. And so I went to the university counseling service and, you know, told my story and the PhD psychologist started crying. I was like, do you want a tissue? (laughs) Uh, Then the next time I came in, she was like, you need to be back on meds. She's like, you need to be back on meds. And I'm like, listen, I've been on all the meds and they did not help me. They made me agitated and suicidal. She's like, well, I'm sending you to the psychiatrist. I went to the psychiatrist and he said, well, there's a new med you haven't tried. You should try this one. Here's the starter pack and go to the bookstore and find this book called, uh, um, what is it? Uh, Peter Kramer, listening to Prozac was the name of it. He's like, buy this book and it'll convince you that this is definitely what you need. And so, yeah, I just went to the bookstore, just like they said, and looked for that book, listening to Prozac. And instead, I found a book called Talking Back to Prozac. You know, there's these, there's just these divine, sometimes these synchronicities in life, you know. So listening to Prozac, which is the far more common and popular title at the time, uh, was not in the bookstore. But this critical, fringy title was in the bookstore. Hooray! Um, and I know, I was just like, all right, because this is just really kind of speaks to the importance of writing books. Because if I hadn't found that, I think my life would have been looked an entirely different way, possibly more like my mom. Um, mm-hmm. And so I read that book cover to cover. And he described so much of what had happened to me, you know, on antidepressants. Again, if antidepressants help your listeners, I'm not judging them. I'm just saying for me, they really made me worse, like consistently. Um, and so um, I, I heard every single side effect, everything that I had experienced on those meds was detailed in this book. And I was like, holy shit, like I need to, that was the first time I felt like I need to tell my story. I felt this urge, this call to like share what had happened to me, not even really talking about my parents so much at this point, but just what had happened to me as a traumatized young girl, you know, in and out of systems and programs and medications. And I wrote to the author, Peter Bregan, and he put me in touch with an advocacy group called Mind Freedom International. And, you know, I was, I just never stopped telling my story after that. And, you know, it was, it was just a real series of fortunate incidences and synchronicities that, um, you know, kind of put me on a whole other path where I just kind of, instead of sort of accepting you know, the medical model or sort of accepting the prevailing kind of mainstream theories, I kind of became a lifelong critic and gadfly <laughs> regarding them, um, which I, would, I wouldn't change that for anything. I feel like you need to give yourself more credit for your destiny here, though, because you're saying like those synchronicities, the coincidences put you on the path, but there was probably a lot going on around you and those you were drawn to those things. You chose to read those things. And you I think you were being guided by an inner knowing. I do believe that. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I think I think it's sort of a combination, right? It's like you're open to certain ideas and then and then you kind of find what you're looking for, right? Or it, it ends up in your path, right? Sort of both of those things. Yeah, cuz I had always had a bit of an anti-authoritarian streak, even though I didn't really have language to question the medical model or a framework to question it cuz right it's presented as scientific fact. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I always was suspicious of it. Right. Um, but, but this kind of these books and these frameworks gave me the language and the vocabulary to, to, to offer critique, um, and also to connect with others around the world who are sort of critical of these approaches and and pushing for something much more enlightened and compassionate. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the increasing number of conversations about, um, the DSM and it's, uh, flaws, you know, being that there's so much overlap in symptoms between the discrete disorders or whatever, what have you, um, the discrete di- diagnostic categories, and that the, the underlying 
connection of so many things being trauma and a lack of emphasis on that in treatment for these disorders, right? Like if trauma is an underlying force in depression, anxiety, bipolar, borderline personality disorder, and that those all have different treatments that are just sort of based in cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical therapy, psychiatric medication, um, the, the trauma is not getting addressed in any of those situations. And I, uh, so I want to share actually about my experience with antidepressants. I think it'll be interesting. Um, I've had two therapists in my life, one when I was in my early 20s, and I have one now. And they're both like, just like state health insurance, CBT sort of practitioners. And the first one, I was depressed. And um, I, I was the most depressed I've ever been. And sometimes I just couldn't summon the uh, resolve to turn my head to like, cause I'd be at work, you know, watching something, watching a child or like watching something I'm supposed to be paying attention. And I like just had to be like, okay, pay attention. Look at that. Something bad could happen if you don't turn your head, but it would be so hard. And so she got me to take antidepressants and, um, I was on, I think it was, uh, Zoloft, the generic Zoloft for, um, a couple weeks. And during that time, I had a few days of being like, oh, I remember this feeling. This is what peaceful feels like. This is what happy feels like. And it was something I hadn't had access to. And that reminder was really helpful. It was. Um, but then I would also be like sitting, you know, almost falling asleep, trying to study for school. And my heart would race, you know, out of my chest as though there was someone chasing me. And I, so I couldn't explain things like that. And then I had this significant life event where I went away for a few days, left my car, my new car, like a new car I had bought with my own hard-earned money that I had made waitressing, um, left it with a friend, went on this trip, forgot my antidepressants. So I just, you know, was accidentally withdrawing from them because I didn't have them with me. And, and I didn't have any symptoms of withdrawal. So that was good. I'd only been on it less than a month. Um, and when I got home, my friend was nowhere to be found. They were supposed to pick me up at the airport. And as it turned out, they had fallen asleep at the wheel in a way and had totaled my car. And they were actually in jail because they had had alcohol. So it was like a DUI. Um, and it took me a while to like learn what had happened. And so the moment that I heard from their family member that, you know, where they were and all that had happened... Um, because I had started to think that maybe they like weren't who I thought they were and they stole my car or, and ran away or something. And just to learn that they were okay, even though they were in jail, but to know that they weren't like actually hurt. Um, I just, it just reminded me of who I am. It's so strange, but I was just like, I did not give a fuck about that car. All I cared about was my friend and we weren't super close friends, but just it just reminded me of something like deep within me that no you know there's no degree of valuing something that would surpass the way that i care for people for all people and then at the same time someone said you should watch game of thrones that's like the weirdest part of <laughs> me getting over my depression is game of thrones like the the themes in the story just gave me something to care about and get consumed with outside of my life that was like i was going down the wrong path i was trying to fit into the mainstream mental health model and be like a prominent therapist that's what i wanted to be like a great phd therapist and and yet i had no idea what i wanted to study outside of my masters i didn't even know if i wanted to be in clinical work or in research or something else and uh, and my relationship was falling apart <clears throat> and then the third thing i started doing was crossfit and then so crossfit had me thinking about my food as fuel for the first time instead of my food as like the enemy, like making me fat. It was like, oh, this is power that I need to move heavier weight and to move faster. Um, and those those three weird events combined just like shot me out of my depression. I found psychedelics a year later, started resolving trauma from my history. And, um, and yeah, and now here I am again with another therapist that when I bring up I think there's a trauma component in this. And I think that this behavior that I have of like something I've been working on lately is um, feeling really sensitive if someone is angry or upset at me and just like being kind of immobilized by the sense of somebody being disappointed or like the guilt that I'll feel or whatever just like consumes me. And she's just like, you know, what about changing this behavior? Or what about think about it another way? And I'm like, no, like I didn't heal from my eating disorder by 
being told what to do now. It was by connecting it to the past and how this was all related to past events and things I had been told and understanding my personality more deeply by looking at my childhood. So I know that the all of this to say that I believe um, having someone there to care about you like my therapists did was helpful. And then like if 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 as I did, someone has a sense that there's something in their history linking to these present behaviors, understanding that is crucial, even if it's not to intellectually understand, but for the body to process what was happening. Yeah, uh, thank you so, so much for, for sharing that. And I think your story just illustrates so, so many different things is that, first of all, um, you know, depression or what we call depression is not just something that exists in the mind, right? Just like trauma is not purely a psychological phenomenon, it's physiological, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And so it makes so much sense to me that like moving your body or sort of doing that kind of strength work, you know, and, and also just having a, a distraction or having kind of like a, something, one of those experiences that kind of like crystallizes what really matters, right? With what you were talking about with the, the car accident and your friend, you're like, oh, you know, this is what really matters. It's all these like trappings of the material world, but but love and relationship, right? That's what what, thri- what we thrive on, you know. So it makes so much sense to me, and and I think there's such a a tendency in Western society to individualize everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we so resist the intersectionality of things, and yes. like especially the mental health system. You know, it's like you know we know there's so much science and so much research that talks about the social determinants of health. Right. Like if you don't have a safe place to live, how are you expected to to not be depressed? If you don't have some kind of a meaningful existence that you feel good about. Right. You know, all of these kind of different things really impact our mental health. And like that's, you know, not even touching, you know, the, the history or the context of our own lives or of our people. You know, if we come from a historically oppressed population. Right. So it's like we're not looking at even beyond the individual let alone to history, let alone to society. And that's like part of that paradigm shift that I'm really, really trying to, to move is that first of all, trusting people to be their own authorities, giving them the language to sort of restory what has happened to them. Right. Like, so for me, you know, I just grew up with five different psychiatric diagnoses. I was told, you know, you have more than a 50% chance of ending up like your parents because of some weird genetic fatalism, like blue eyes or brown eyes or something. Mm. Um, You know, so I grew up with this kind of like really negative prognosis and internalized it on a lot of levels. And it wasn't until I was able to kind of rewrite that story, not to kind of write away the painful parts or put rose colored glasses on it, but to be like, oh, I'm not fucked up the system's fucked up like the world's fucked up you know if I'm fucked up it's it's in part and parcel of the world being fucked up but but the problem is not inherently in me you know there 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 are problems that exist in this world and that we're all kind of reacting to them and trying to navigate you know this unjust kind of burning world the best we can and I find that you know it doesn't fix everything and make everything okay but I find that to be a much more empowering narrative then well your brain chemistry is fucked up and all, all you can do is take our drugs and take you know do our evidence-based practices and you know if those don't work then you're treatment resistant and we might have to do ect you know things like that right so it's just kind of this very sort of technical mechanical approach to health and healing yeah yeah and it feels important to say at some point in this conversation that if a person is not resourced in the way that they can get talk therapy, they can, you know, access like getting out of an abusive situation or whatever. And like, it may be that what the system can provide is more relief than going without it. And um, I was fortunate to have the resources and the access to the things that I did have access to, to go another route. And I'm grateful for that. I I hope for, I, I, it, it can't be impossible to to like allow everyone access to that, to finding their own way. You know, it should never be that it's choosing between taking meds or not. Cause those are the only options. Yeah. I really thank you for bringing that up because I don't, 
I don't want to come across as med shaming anyone. You know, I think I've, I've been, um, people have sort of called me out on language where it caused them to feel that way. And even though that wasn't my intention, I can own that, uh, you know, whatever I said caused people to feel ashamed. And that's the last thing that I would ever want to do. Um, that, yeah, it is, it's true that, you know, people don't always have those access to the social determinants of health or access to the kind of community that we need to co-regulate with each other. I count myself in, <laughs> in that category, right? Mm. Uh, feeling very isolated a lot of the time, right? Mm. Um, but, uh you know, and if, if the medications are helping you, that's great. You know, if they're sort of helping you to like get up another day and navigate this world, like that's great, whatever it is that works for you and keeps you going. Um, you know, and then there's like all of us for which the medications really don't work or they make us worse. And then we're not taken seriously. Like that's just seen as a symptom of our craziness if we question it. Right. And that's really fucked, you know? So I think we can hold, both of these realities that, you know, this is central to some folks being able to survive and stay afloat. And that for some of us, like they're hurting and killing us. Like, I don't know what to do about that, but it's, it's, it's a complicated truth, you know, that that's out there, you know, in this imperfect world that we live in. Yeah. Do you want to talk about mad in America at all? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, Mad in America is a publication that I, I'm doing some freelance uh, work with, doing some writing for, um, that was started by um, Robert Whitaker, uh, who's a journalist uh, who wrote a book called Mad in America, um, which really is kind of looking at, um, you know, the history of how we treat people who are diagnosed with mental illness and, you know, how uh, in some ways we were much more enlightened you know, in the 1800s with things like moral, what they called more the moral therapy movement, where people had access to healthy food and fresh air and farming and creative expression. You know, that's kind of what treatment looked like at one point, right? Um, to that whole kind of, you know, progression into eugenics and institutionalizing people and kind of how that all shifted in the 20th century. So, you know, through that book, I feel like, um, you know, Robert helped to sort of galvanize uh, this movement that already existed, you know, of people who had been really harmed, you know, by, by the system, by the treatment, you know, by the way that they were responded to in the mental health system. Um, so I think with that book, he kind of helped to galvanize or maybe crystallize the movement a little bit. Um, and so that um, website, which is a, just online publication with blogs and reports and resources, they have a podcast. Um, really is seeking to sort of promote uh, an alternative understanding of mental health. I think in in a way that, um, you know, I'm a little biased because I work with them, but, you know, I think there's very few publications out there online or otherwise that are offering such a consistently smart and critical perspective, right? And that, you know, the, the tagline is science, psychiatry, and social justice. So we're not anti-science. <laughs> We're very pro-science, but good science, you know, not pseudoscience, not a bunch of white men sitting around in a room deciding what is and isn't normal, which is what the DSM is based on. Mm -hmm. So we're all about real science, <laughs> um, but we often get accused of being anti-science, but we're not. Um, so I think that, you know, it excites me to be a part of that, to be a part of that movement, to be a part of that dialogue and to be kind of, I don't know, I just, I always like being in the face of power and um, challenging it. And I thrive on that. <laughs> so, so mad in America just it gives, always gives me an opportunity to just kind of give it, speak truth to power, to give it to power. And, um, and, and a lot of other people as well, it gives a voice to people who would not be at all heard in our, in our mainstream media for, for having a narrative that um, goes counter to kind of the established narrative on such things. Well, you are a breath of fresh air, as always. <clears throat> Thank you so much. I mean, I think, you know, something else we might consider looking at, too, is kind of this, um, the, the mainstreaming of psychedelics mm. and kind of the assimilation into the, the mainstream mental health world or maybe even the slightly fringy mental health world, but still closer you know, out of the underground, let's put it that way. 
um, and how you and I have had conversations about just our mixed feelings about that. And I think you sent me a great speech by a disability rights activist, you know, expressing similar misgivings. You know, if, let's say, for example, MDMA-assisted therapy gets FDA approval and is kind of rolled out, you know, into the mainstream in a big way, which I think is what some, you know, other advocates are hoping for. Um, you know, how do we mitigate some of those harmful aspects of the system that it's now going to sort of be a part of? And I don't, I don't have the answers to that. <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. If you, you know, wanted to share any. Well, I think you're talking about Kitty Sipple, who is the um, yeah. episode bef- it's going to be the episode before you that'll be episode 60 and you're 61 and um, oh, yeah so all the links for that are in that episode and something that I really love that they said which we talked about in the episode is um, we're trying to create an alternative branch of psychiatry when we should be creating an alternative to psychiatry as it cur- in its current exactly. existence exactly and that's really I think the sort of crux of the matter yeah is is what will be the cost of being some kind of alternative psychiatric approach, right? Versus what we're talking about, which is really an entirely different paradigm for how we respond to people, how we work with people, how we center uh, lived experience versus, you know, PhD expertise, right? And somebody could have both, uh, you know, very well could have both, but right now there's still that centering of, academic credentials and know-how over sort of lived and learned experience. And I think that there's a centering of the drugs themselves and the the drug therapy combo itself and not enough um, uh, shining the light on these systems that lead to the trauma that we're treating and how war war is an aspect of that, right? Like, you know, so amazing to relieve the suffering of veterans with PTSD and active duty members of the military who have PTSD. And what does it mean that we might be relieving them of their symptoms so that they can return to the very contexts within which they were traumatized? And that doesn't have to just be war zones. That could be the war zone of capitalism or the police state or anything else. Yeah, I love that you are bringing this up because, yeah, I think that this is kind of one of the most um, kind of dangerous aspects of a very overly individualistic medical model is that it's really training people again to sort of locate the problem within themselves. And so necessarily there's where is the space for social change in that? And, our, and each one of our roles in social change, right? It's completely been um, removed from the equation. It, it, it's forcing people just to kind of go inward. Um, so, yeah. So, I'm, yeah, I think that this is a massively important point. And um, I remember reading this great article um, by a social worker named Vicki Reynolds, who's based in um, Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, and it was called Hate Kills, a Social Justice Response to Suicide. We could put it in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and she says in there, um, you know, talking about someone she worked with who she actually referred to, I think she referred her to a, a theater of the oppressed workshop. This was a survivor of torture that she had been working with. And she referred this person to a theater of the oppressed workshop or somehow they found out and they wanted to go and were telling Vicki Reynolds, oh, you know, my, my doctor and my treatment team, like all think like I shouldn't do this theater, the oppressed workshop, you know, Vicky's like, well, do you want to do it? And the person said, yeah, I really want to go. So they went. And afterwards, um, Vicky asked, so, you know, tell me like, what was it like? How many therapy sessions would you say that that theater of the oppressed workshop was worth? And this person like w- barely without thinking was like, probably it was worth a hundred therapy sessions, mm. like one theater of the oppressed workshop, right? You know, Mm -hmm. activism and awareness and kind of, you know, broadening beyond that. It's like, you you know, you as the individual survivor have to figure this out, but that actually like we're all in this together and we're all being affected to different degrees, right? And that solidarity is going to change this and creative expression and awareness. Um, So that story really, really stayed with me. And, And I will be honest, like 
I've done therapy. I've done tons of therapy. I've done different kinds of therapy. I've done, I've done trauma informed therapy and mindfulness and all this stuff. But for me, activism, whatever that looks like, uh, expression has been my greatest healing. Um, that was never something that was ever offered to me by a system or by a service, you know, other than like putting things together with popsicle sticks, which nothing wrong with a good popsicle stick sculpture. Oh no, no, quite the opposite. There's There's a lot of things right about that. You can have really good, like a lot of fun with glue and googly eyes and um, popsicle sticks, you know, not to knock that, but, uh, you know, it was really not really anything beyond it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess, you know, another thing maybe that we could chat about is you know, in my, I was really terrified of psychedelics because of what happened to my mom. Really, you know, part of me was really afraid when it came time for me to <laughs> to do my own experimentation mm. that they would like mess me up in the same way. Mm-hmm. Or just, I didn't understand her, what had happened to her to begin with. Like I had really this incomplete narrative that I was working with. And, you know, I'm just, I'm really thankful that I, I didn't let that fear hold me back. Um, And I guess that's kind of where I think about the intergenerational healing when it comes to psychedelics, right? And maybe this is people of my generation, you know, I don't know specifically, but, you know, for those of us whose parents were really harmed Mm -hmm. to now see how it's all sort of coming full circle and coming back around and how I've had um, extraordinary experiences of opening and healing, you know, using psychedelics, you know, in my own practice. Um, and I'm so thankful that I didn't, you know, I didn't have the experience that my mom had. I didn't have any of those kind of negative experiences that get called quote bad trips. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that, that would sort of make me question my sanity. Right. Um, but I've had lots of things in my life that make me question my sanity. (laughs) One of them, um, you know, I've, I've had really positive experiences um, and consider those experiences to be part and parcel of my healing, you know, and that's, you know, part of why I'm so excited about this revolution, right? Even with all of the challenges that, you know, we're aware of and that we're talking about, um, because it, it does almost feel like a redemption, you know, from those days um, and uh, an opportunity for new generations to have access to things you know, in, in a different way that, that my generation didn't. Um, so. Right. And with potentially less difficult trips and less paranoia, et cetera, because it's not necessarily the drugs themselves that cause paranoia and difficulty, right? It's prohibition, it's stigma, it's being told that it's going to make you crazy or whatever. I mean, that was why I didn't try pot until I was a little bit older and psychedelics until I was much older than that, because I knew that my mom had been traumatized by just a few isolated experiences. And she just started taking CBD, I'm happy to say. So (laughs) yeah, lead, lead by example and people around will be curious and follow. But um, thank you so much for, offering your story to the show and, and your wisdom. Um, something I always ask people is what is your consciousness hack or what do you do to elevate your consciousness or tap in? And it's, you know, what, what have you been doing lately even is a valid answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, no, thank you so much for having me. And I've, I've really loved this conversation. You know, I think what I've realized more and more is that, um, you know, when I'm kind of spiraling or just kind of really just struggling and feeling disconnected um, is that I, I need to be in relationship to someone or something else. So mm-hmm. it's, it's either reaching out to someone I love or just laying down on the ground, as strange as it sounds, like I, I get so much out of just connecting with earth right it sounds so simple but being in the elements like even you know if I can't get outside you know just the element of water like taking a shower and going for a walk like there's something incredibly uh healing (laughs) and I guess these are very very obvious things but I yeah sometimes I find like just the simplicity is so incredibly helpful um so I've just I've, I've really started to do 
a lot more. Um, I think another thing I would mention is um, I learned a modality called tension and trauma releasing exercises. Um, and you can look it up on, I think it's trauma prevention uh, com or .org. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, trauma, tension and trauma releasing exercises, which is um, a very, very cool modality that I, I learned. I'm actually a facilitator, a TRE, a trained certified person um, that just involves like uh, stress, stressing certain muscle groups and stretching certain muscle groups. And it actually creates what is called a therapeutic tremor in the body that just let go of stuff. Um, it's really powerful uh, and very strange modality, <laughs> but really powerful. And I've gotten so much out of practicing it and teaching it to folks. Um, and what I love about it is that it's like once I teach it to someone, they don't need to keep coming back to me. Like it's their practice that they can, they can come back to me if they want, but it's not like something where they need to be dependent on me as the practitioner, they can just, um, you know, take that practice and do take it however they want. So, um, so I would say, yeah, those are my things, the elements and TRE. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Mm, well, <clears throat> um, before you share how people can find you, uh, is there anything else that you want to say or shout out to or talk about? You know, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really struck by, you know, as, as terrifying as so many things are in this world right now. Um, you know, when, when I think about where we're going, uh, you know, with psychedelics and with our understanding of the mental and the physical and how it's so conditioned by the societal, like this, this does give me hope kind of in the face of all of that, that, that there's people who are really fighting for, for us to understand our minds in a whole other way. Right. And, and, to view them in isolation from our bodies and, and from the world. Yes, I feel the same way. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> That's right. There's a whole movement of us. <laughs> oh, so where can we find you online to follow you? So, yeah, I have a website, uh, LeahIdaHarris.com. Dot com. Um, so you can definitely contact me or message me through there, learn a little bit more about what I do and read some of the stuff I've written. Um, I'm also really active on Twitter um, at L-E-A-H-I-D-A, which is my middle name. So at Leah Ida. Uh, and I post a fair amount on Instagram at Rewrite the Story. Mm, nice handle. Is it a handle on Instagram? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah, at, at re, rewrite the story. I'll rewrite the story. All one word. Cool. Awesome. Thank you, Leah. Thank you so, so much. It's been great talking with you. The Psychologist is Consciousness Positive Radio. Find us everywhere podcasts are hosted. For more information, visit us on Facebook or online at thepsychologist.com.